is a good software developer? What do excellent developers do? There are probably as many answers to these questions as developers in the world. So let's ask veterans and newcomers what their story look like. Let's learn directly from them. Welcome to Developer's Journey. Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining light on developers' life from all over the world. Today we have a live episode again. We have Catherine Jambul here at the Herbst Campus conference in Nuremberg. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Um, you just gave a great keynote, the opening keynote of the conference in front of a not quite full audio, uh, auditorium. <laughs> I think it was too early for, for a lot of yeah, attendees. Yeah, yeah, too early for ethics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, exactly. A, a talk about ethics in the IT. Mm. And I think we should come back to that um, at some point. But let's start with uh, a bit about yourself. How did you come up to being in a position to speaking at such a conference, to being invited to um, hold a keynote at an IT conference? What's what's your background that led to that? Yeah, this is a bit of a long story. Um, maybe the story begins with how I even started working with computers. Um, and in this aspect, uh, I was first interested in computers and computer science as a kid. So my dad was an engineer for IBM, and therefore we had a computer. I was privileged enough to have a computer growing up, and I thought it was the neatest thing ever. Um, I was also quite talented at math, and so this ended up, of course, driving me into kind of the sciences, so to speak. Uh, enter university days, and I was on a scholarship studying electrical engineering and computer science. And in my first year, I had a lot of really actually negative experiences, unfortunately. And this was because the diversity of my incoming freshman class, this was 2001. So this was a top hype cycle of the first dot com, right? So you can imagine mm -hmm. uh, it was a very uh, overly impacted major, they like to call it. Uh, mm -hmm. Lots of applicants. And it tended to be not very diverse. And I actually had a lot of problems on group projects finding a team um, because mm -hmm. there was a little bit maybe of this prejudice that perhaps because of my gender um, that maybe I wasn't going to be a great teammate. And I had numerous times to be assigned to teams, which is, of course is very traumatizing as an 18 year old. You're like, Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Um, so I actually decided to focus more on the math and I ended up uh, focusing on statistics within the economics department. Mm -hmm. Um, so I switched my major. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm one of the losses of the computer science department of that era. And, uh, did economics, went and had a few other careers and eventually found my way back into computers. About five or six years later, mm -hmm. I ended up working at the Washington Post, uh, which is a large news organization based in DC. And one of the app developers there saw a talent in me. I had built a few little quasi with JavaScript and a little bit of data cleaning, um, some things. And he asked me to join the data journalism team. And then I uh, learned Python for the first time and started really getting more hardcore into back into computers. Uh, and from there, the rest is history. That was in 2008. So uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it's been some time since then. 
since then, I've started working at startups and at larger companies and eventually found my way to Germany, which I love living here. I live in Berlin, so sorry for my English, but <laughs> Berlin. So, um, and uh, I run a startup there that focuses on privacy. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I've always been really outspoken of my political beliefs, of some of my beliefs about diversity in the industry and ethics in the industry from my own personal experience and journey. And this is something that, yeah, maybe due to my outspokenness is the reason for the invitation to speak here at Hope's Campus. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It definitely is. <laughs> um, since since you've been uh, since you made this this transition to uh, to development, yeah, um, how did this did this diversity uh, impact your decisions to uh, where you want to work? And uh, I mean, was was it clear from the very beginning that this is something you are going to seek out, or did it slowly come into your life and you realize with bad experiences that this is something for you? How, how did that come to be? Yeah. So, I mean, when I was a kid working on it, my mom actually also worked uh, with the marketing side of a technology company. Um, And my stepmother is a mathematician by trade, by training. And she also led an engineering team at Nortel. She worked in networking equipment. And so I had these strong female figures that, you know, worked in tech that were good at math. Um, most of my best math teachers were women. And so I was kind of mm-hmm. in this bubble of, yeah, well, women are really great at math. I mean, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, and then when I entered university, this was, of course, a very rude awakening for me that I tended to skew the opposite way, both in my uh, colleagues, in terms of my peers, as well as the university staff. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that this, for me, was the first moment that I realized that maybe math wasn't, you know, this kind of women-led industry. And maybe computers weren't this kind of um, like super welcoming environment, at least in the United States at that point in time, at least in the communities I was involved in. And I think this originally made me feel like, okay, maybe there isn't a place for me here, even though I really enjoy this work. Maybe this is not an, a nice place to be and maybe I need to find somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I found my way back into it, I had an excellent mentor. Uh, his name is Ryan O'Neill, and I believe he runs the data science team now at uh, Grubhub, I think. But he really took me under his wing and spent evenings uh, going over OR with me and optimization equations and so forth so I could really get back into the math mm-hmm. of the data science aspect, even though I had you know, dropped that aspect, so to speak, um, from my major when I focused mainly on the economics and the statistics. So as I wasn't as, as in, enveloped in the computer science optimization part of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was uh, your time before the uh, Washington Post? Washington Post. That was at the Washington Post, uh, actually. Washington yeah, Post, yeah. Okay. He was, uh, he was the team lead of the apps team then of this data journalism team. Okay. He set me up with my first uh, Linux computer, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it was a good time. It was a good time. And I think with that mentoring, it really made me feel uh, welcome. And I helped found then, a few years later, the very first PyLadies group, which is a diversity in Python and open source community. And I founded that with um, some other women I knew, and we tended to be the only women at the meetup groups, and mm-hmm. <laughs> we were like complaining about it as usual, you know? And we said, okay... 
maybe we should do something about this. And we had a big dinner over at my house um, and I cooked a big lasagna and we met and said, okay, what would, could we do? And we said, you know, let's, let's form pie ladies. Let's, that sounds like a fun name. Let's form pie ladies and let's put on some events and see what happens. And I'm happy to say that our second event was a hackathon, a all weekend hackathon. And it was the first hackathon I've been to that had more women than men. Ooh. We had 60% women. Cool. And I was like, where was everybody? <laughs> where were you hiding? And uh, that was for us like a big game changer in terms of uh, when you put that you support diversity out there and when you put... Um, diverse folks speaking at the front of the room, you tend to just attract a more diverse audience. It's mm. just, yeah, people feel welcome. They do. Could you, could you keep up the, uh, this, this quote, this 60% quote, uh, still? Or, I mean, in the pie lady, I suppose, uh, yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> But if you do more, uh, more Python oriented or science oriented, can you still attract that many, uh, women? Yeah. I mean, so I think, One nice thing about data science is it has the maths aspect and uh, maths tends to be a little bit more diverse than some of the other uh, STEM areas. And so I think uh, one nice thing is I meet quite a lot of uh, female PhDs and uh, masters in mathematics, also in bioinformatics and so forth. So I think that it has this aspect that is a little bit different than um, programming only, which I think still has a long way to go, unfortunately. It depends on what country you're talking about, right? So part of living in Berlin has meant I've met a lot of really amazing uh, hackerinnen and uh, female programmers, particularly from uh, Balkan states and the Eastern uh, Europe states where uh, it's more gender diverse in terms of what people study with computers. That's cool. That's yeah. interesting. <laughs> um, I would like to come back to the mentoring topic. Um, uh, just rolling back to, uh, to your mentor, Ryan. Um, yeah. How did you find each other out or how did this mentoring relationship um, uh, first originated? How, how did that work out? Yeah. So um, I had built this app um, that was going to go with some of the stories that I was helping with for the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And I forget exactly, but it was something um, basically with Google Maps, JavaScript API, and as a bit of an interactive and so forth. And it was based off of some JavaScript code that somebody there had already written. And I just modified it and changed it. And I actually optimized it because I found a few loops that I was like, these are unnecessary. I don't know why this is happening. Let me take them out to see if it still works. And it still works. So I was like, okay, this is better. Less code is better. I remembered that much. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, And he was like, who did this? And so he came and found me and was like, did you build this? Did you build it, you know, yourself? And I was like, yeah, um, yeah, I just put it together because I thought it would be interesting with the story. And he was like, how would you feel if I set up a computer for you with some of the apps that we're building over on the apps team? And I said, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, I told him that, you know, at one point in time in my life, I studied computer science and that I would be very open to helping out if it made sense. And he set me up with uh, Ubuntu, I believe, or maybe Kubuntu at that point in time, and the whole stack of what they were using, which was at that point in time, actually the largest Django installation in the world, uh, the Washington Post is running, which is better or worse, maybe not the best uh, place to start. And uh, he gave me a commit key 
And uh, I took down production several times. <laughs> and that was maybe not so great. That makes for a good story. <laughs> I learned quickly, let's just say. <laughs> you would come running over, ah, oh, did you push something? Oops, sorry. Roll back. So I learned Git pretty fast. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, actually we're using uh, SVN at the time. Um, but yeah, the essential basics of how do you roll back your commit? Um, and he really took me under his arm. I went over to st- spend half time with the app team and I learned from some folks on the team during pair programming and so forth. And he used to give me homework exercises. So oh. building a linked list from scratch, all of, uh, you know, the classics, um, reading the, what is it? The art of programming, the Rob Pike book mm-hmm. and so forth. So I went through all the exercises there. And I started to really rebuild some of the basics that I remembered, but make them more active in my in my daily life. And uh, then I actually got recruited to lead my own team uh, like that at a rival publication. And I okay. went there and made more mistakes. I bricked my first server there, which was fun <laughs> times. Uh, it was Red Hat Enterprise Linux 4, I believe. And I completely bricked it trying to uh, install some newer Python tools. Um which was a good time. Good yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, networks, they're fun. And since then, I've just been constantly learning and learning a lot on the job and learning from finding people that I think uh, are doing admirable work or who are really bright and trying to have them spend time with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now I seek mentors uh, and also try to give back and mentor um, folks that I think maybe... Um, could use some advice or even just somebody to hear with them, to listen to them. How do you do that? Both seeking mentors and, and kind of, uh, I wouldn't say seeking mentees, but uh, nourishing, in, in air quotes, uh, mentees. How do you do that? Yeah, so um, I help organize PyData Berlin, which is a large conference on data science um, in Berlin with open source tools um, that's run by a nonprofit organization. Um, and essentially the idea is that we can fund open source. So how can we give back to the community and help fund the open source development for quite a lot of the data science and machine learning tools that are in Python and in open source? And so that's the goal of PyData. And what I noticed when I first started getting involved, which is a little bit more than two years ago, that... Um, even though the community was diverse, the speakers were not as diverse. So I didn't see as many speakers from underrepresented groups. And I thought, you know, perhaps this is a problem that I can help with. And so what was already there that I started actually working on is a mentoring program. And this mentoring program is not only for new attendees, so you're a fresh attendee and you kind of want to know what is this whole thing about, how should I go about technical conferences, what should I do, learning about the hallway track and these other uh, parts of conferencing, this is an important part, but also how can we mentor new speakers? Mm -hmm. So how can we find new speakers that have, let's say, even fresh perspectives or different perspectives, and how can we make them feel welcome to submit proposals and to, you know, speak at all of these conferences. And the mentoring program has really expanded uh, in the last year. We had uh, more than 30 proposals come from the mentoring program, which is really great. And we put on a few events. We put on a CFP hackathon, basically, a proposal-thon. 
uh, where we all get together in a big room. The Pi ladies are there. We also have a, a hacker group in Berlin, Hackerinnen, called Heart of Code. Uh, they were helping promote and we sit in a room and we just help people. It's basically open office hours and we have some more experienced speakers there to help, you know, refine the proposal. Um, Because mm -hmm. I think, you know, when you speak at a lot of conferences, you start to learn what people are looking for. And if you're completely new to it, this is um, uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is right before, we also have a present-a-thon. And you can come in and it's a full weekend and you can present your slides and get feedback. You can even just come in for a quiet place with coffee to work on your slides if you're <laughs> leaving it to the last minute. But... <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, and this is the weekend before the conference. And this gives you that extra boost, hopefully, of confidence mm -hmm. of having some feedback. And it's also open to the community. So if you can't afford or you didn't buy tickets in time to go to the conference, you can come get a sneak peek of a few of the talks. And mm -hmm. I think this has really helped uh, create the community. We also have a scholarship fund. Um, that we use. So we have sponsors that fund scholarships for those that cannot afford their tickets and their travel. And uh, this year we were able to sponsor 20 attendees to attend who couldn't otherwise afford to attend. Cool. And so I think this, these are all just little pieces that I think make people feel welcome. And for me, this is really essential because uh, if it wasn't for Ryan's help and if it wasn't for a team that was so open and willing to have somebody break production occasionally, um, I wouldn't be here. And so uh, the least I can do is give back a little bit. Mm-hmm. My mind is just exploding right now with, with ideas. So just great ideas. Cool. <laughs> I'm going to try out three or four of them already. That's just great. That's great. Um, I ask you this question because um, I'm speaking a lot about mentoring. Hmm. And the first question I always get is, well, how do I find a mentor? <laughs> and my answer is usually by not speaking about mentoring. <laughs> <laughs> it would be like 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 um like dating and talking about marriage uh, right away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, don't do that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I'm always interested in how people found found themselves. And what I realized is mostly well, um, there was one one person maybe with a bit of seniority, and they realized somebody was interested and just started nourishing the fire and saying, "Well, here's a piece, and if this person comes back, then we'll give." him or her another piece and we'll see how that goes mm -hmm. and this evolves in time into something yeah. and so this is what you're confirming again yeah so it's, it's, it's really interesting yeah yeah <laughs> and so. you know it takes some patience and i think it takes like a, a compromise on time from both sides so mm -hmm. now a lot of times the people that i seek out for example um i was recently in singapore and i stopped by the university of singapore to this professor that i just completely admire like mm -hmm. in awe of his work his name is professor reza shokri mm -hmm. and he is working on quantitative privacy methods so how can we quantify privacy and how can we use um adversarial learning was his latest paper on determining how to create more private machine learning and i'm just completely in awe of his work and i just wrote him a little note and i said you know i'm gonna be in singapore i know you're probably really busy i admire your work i loved this one paper do you have time do you have office hours and i could drop by and we talked for nearly two hours and it was fantastic cool. 
And uh, for me, that was just so wonderful to be able to thank him for his contributions and his work. I hope for him it was okay. <laughs> but, you know, you have to also, as somebody looking for that mentorship, you have to also put yourself out there mm-hmm. and understand that people are also busy and they have their own work and they have their own issues. So find that little compromise, even if it's just a few hours, mm-hmm. uh, try to make the most of it. Yeah, I, I was thinking about you, what you're saying right now. Um, I can't remember the last time somebody bothered me with questions. Mm. Um, usually, usually people don't come to you. Yeah, they usually censor themselves and don't ask. Exactly. And people say, oh, well, I know that you're too, too busy. But I mean, throwing out a quick email or whatever it is, is the best way to communicate with the person and asking, hey, do you have 20 minutes? Um, I think as somebody, most of us have been mentored in some way. So I think there's a lot of understanding there. Mm -hmm. Um, You you just mentioned privacy. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe we should just go uh, a bit in this direction. How did you come to being um, so important, so 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 uh, interested in, in privacy, and um, interested enough to make it your day job and uh, and um, create the startup around privacy? What's what's the story behind this? Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, anybody that grew up with computers during, uh, let's say, the late nineties, early thousands. Uh, had a little bit of this allure of security, right? Security culture and uh, what does security mean, as well as a little bit of the experiences of the first internet when it felt, it maybe wasn't, but it felt slightly more anonymous, right? So um, I got my start in IRC channels and so forth. I still hang out on Freenode occasionally and there was this idea that you could connect with other people, that they might be also security and privacy minded or politically minded even. And that um, there was kind of this greater online community that was still aiming towards uh, creating an internet where there was this free and open sharing, but that there was also um, anonymity. There was also the ability to potentially... Um, hide certain things about yourself or have some element of privacy. Uh, this was before, of course, the, the eve of the social networks and uh, the tracking of every browser across multiple parts of the internet. And maybe that was easier for people that weren't as young as I was to see coming. Maybe this was something that um, I just missed coming. But it was something that I feel like now um, is somewhat lost. And I miss the ability to feel as if I'm able to browse the internet in a more private manner and that I'm able to interact with software and services and choose, let's say, the level of information that I share or choose, for example, um, my perspective of the internet. Mm-hmm. And I'm a particularly privileged user, right? I know a lot about how technology works. I know about how tracking works. Um, I earn enough money to have a comfortable life. I am white. I am educated. So the internet is not really that dangerous of a place for me. It's pretty nice. Maybe mm-hmm. occasionally I get charged more than somebody else, but that's probably like the most dangerous part. But uh, when we see things, like I mentioned in the keynote, Cambridge Analytica, and when we see people that maybe are less um, tech savvy, as well as people that are from more at-risk populations, we see how the lack of privacy can really create a dangerous place in the internet for people, a place where they succumb to predatory advertising, 
a place where they're exposed to propaganda. And obviously, um, these are really negative effects. And I'd rather, um, computers are awful sometimes, but I'd rather computers be a source of good. I really like computers. I like working with computers. I want them to help make the world a slightly more positive place rather than an extremely negative place. <laughs> and so for this reason, yeah, I think privacy really is a key point right now in terms of how we determine how we move forward in terms of computer engineering, computer science, and definitely data science. Um, and I think by allowing people to choose privacy and by allowing people the security of knowing that their data is also safe, that this is something that computers that we can do with computers that would be a positive contribution mm -hmm. that would allow people to have a little bit more control over how they experience the internet online and would hopefully deter folks from the types of propaganda machines like Cambridge Analytica story shows us. I guess it's um, a loaded question, but um, <laughs> uh, how does hope look like in this, in this future? Yeah. I mean, uh, If I take my uh, my uh, um, pessimistic glasses, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't see hope in there. Um, people tend to cut corners mm -hmm. and uh, not necessarily uh, be evil by design, yeah. but be evil by mistake. And um, those corners are used, are misused, yeah. and we land in quite a dark place. Mm -hmm. um, uh, do you have Do you have a, a, a vision how that could be flipped on its head? Well, of course I do. So, <laughs> are you willing to share it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everybody is going to come up with somewhat of their own conclusions on this, but obviously I'm optimistic and I must remain optimistic. This is Great. just, uh, this is my Ami self, you know, this is, uh, optimism until the end. And, um, part of my optimism is, for example, I recently founded a startup with my co-founder and, Our vision, our goal really is to, um, one could say democratize privacy, to make privacy easier. Mm -hmm. So how can we make privacy easier? And I agree with you. Um, in general, I mean, the joke goes that programmers are lazy, right? We always find whatever shortcut to make it easier so we can go back to whatever it was we were doing before we had to open our terminal and start working. <laughs> so maybe we open just another terminal that we find more fun, but it's still a problem, right? And so rather than everybody in the world becoming privacy or security experts, how can we make this privacy by design or by default? Right. And we all know, and especially those of you that uh, interact with the security uh, community, defaults are almost always uh, set to completely open, completely free admin, admin. <laughs> let's all just have a great time because nothing bad will ever happen if we connect an open database to the Internet. It should be totally okay. And yeah, that's just unfortunately also the way that a lot of people are doing machine learning. So when you publish a model online, uh, it has been proven time and time again that extracting the information or making inferences about the training data, that essentially you've, you've connected an open database to the internet. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, what we're trying to build at KI Protect is tools that make this easy by default. How can we make things more private that will still work for data science and machine learning? And so we've developed, for example, our first offering is a pseudonymization API that allows for structure preserving pseudonymization. 
So how can we preserve hierarchies within the data or statistical relationships while still privatizing the data in some ways? Mm -hmm. And so this is, for example, one of our first offerings. There's also a lot of other people working in this space. And this brings me hope. I get a lot of exposure to this um, privacy and security and machine learning space. This is a deep interest of mine and... I do think that there are people out there that are doing the research, that are doing the work on how we can build, at least within the data science and machine learning community, more accountability for security and more accountability for privacy. And I hope that this, you know, I think uh, that this is inspiring for me, and I hope that this also inspires folks from numerous other fields within computers to do similar research and similar work. So your first target is, is developers or people in the IT, uh, the IT world. Yeah. Raise the awareness about all this and, and start thinking about that. And then we can talk about the end user. Yeah. And try to make things, uh, simple and secure by default, mm -hmm. right? So whenever you're developing software, know that your user is probably not going to read the manual and, uh, they're going to use whatever's by default. And so mm -hmm. if by default it doesn't work until they set, uh, let's say a secure, uh, encrypted password or this or that, whatever it is your service is providing, if by default you make them take some action, mm -hmm. uh, this is maybe slightly better uh, than just mm -hmm. saying, okay, it's up to them. They got to read through the security section of this manual, which we all know nobody's going to do. Better. Maybe two people will do out of all of the people that use it. So, mm -hmm. How's, how's the, um, the, uh, the resonance so far? How are people reacting to, uh, to your talks and to your efforts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mixed bag, and I think that's to be expected. So I think um, that uh, it's really heartening. Of course, I meet a lot of people who agree with me, and that's always nice. It's nice when people agree with you, and they want to talk about these issues, and they're excited to try them, and um, particularly those that are in industries where they already are thinking a lot about security and privacy. Um, I find a lot of uh, shared points of view. Right. And this tends to be healthcare, banking, uh, or finance and the security field. But outside of that, I think it's a hard sell because I think unfortunately security, the onus has often been put on the developer to think of it. And again, the developer is not usually a security expert. And so here you have this developer that's already probably doing five more things than they should be, that's already overworked, or you have, let's say, the IT person, and they're already overworked, and now they have to do pen testing too, and they have to think about these all these other things as well. And I think when we overburden these teams with security as just one more thing on their plate or privacy as one more thing on their plate, we're doing a disservice to everyone, right? Um, we're definitely doing a disservice to them. And at the end of the day, we're doing a disservice to whoever uses our services mm -hmm. because by default, we have privacy as a weekend project, uh, which doesn't work. Right? At, at best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. If it doesn't fall before the testing, if we didn't have time for tests, though we will never, never have time for privacy and load testing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, this is hopefully something that, um, from engineering management that people start to think about and mm -hmm. really delineate a separate, uh, engineering team to something like this, as well as hopefully solutions like what we're trying to build that make it somebody else's problem who only worries about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so sometimes it's the best way to yeah. go is you don't want to worry about it. Well, let somebody else worry about it. 
Like creating a market for it and threat and uh, <laughs> having people take care of it. No, that's good. Uh, good approach. Um, we're kind of reaching the end of the time box. Okay. Uh, I would love to uh, to come back to one aspect we didn't speak much about. So you're now an entrepreneur. Um, yeah. Do you have employees with you? Yeah. So right now we have only some part-time folks. We okay. are looking to hire though and expand. That will most likely happen in the beginning of next year. Okay. So we will but, be hiring then. Yeah. But you mentioned you have uh, you have been a team lead as well in this. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've uh, led a few teams. Yeah. So. Um, I would like you to 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 uh, come back to this idea. Um, what is a good software developer, or yeah. what kind of traits are you looking for? What what are the people you um, you are searching for in the world, and you would like to work with them? Um, mm -hmm. And how do you find them? Yeah, I would say um, I look primarily for two different aspects, and they're difficult to find in the same person. So when I find them, I really hang on to those people. Uh, the first aspect is curiosity and. Uh, exploration. So want somebody that's curious to learn more, that's constantly questioning, maybe even questioning me, that's totally fine. Uh, I, I do things wrong all the time. So I want somebody that's curious, that kind of has this inquisitive nature, that's wanting to keep learning and that's wanting to keep thinking. And even if I find somebody, let's say, that has more junior skills, I know that that curiosity will eventually push them into senior skills just almost by default without even really having to do much is that curiosity is going to, as long as, you know, you put uh, the path in the right direction, that's going to really bring about a fantastic software engineer or developer one day, um, maybe even today, right? And so the curiosity is something I always search for. And the other one is endurance, Mm -hmm. um, persistence and endurance. And I, this is why I think it's difficult for, to find both because usually you're curious, but maybe you're a little bit impatient. Uh, I tend to fall on that side more, but the endurance thing is something I've learned over time and something that I often see in some of the people I admire the most in this field, which is the gunning, they're willing to see failure and they're willing to push through that and try again. And they're willing to, you know, whatever their maybe perfectionist desires and so forth, they're willing to push through them and keep trying and keep working and um, deal with these failures or these shortcomings um, as they come and continue to just keep working, right? Um, and I think that this is something that you really need in a team is you need somebody there that's going to, in the hard moments or in the everybody's there at midnight because you have to ship and you're late, which hopefully isn't the case, right? If you're doing planning right. But anyways, it sometimes is the case that there's going to be the person there that also helps keep the team uh, focused that says, you know, we can do this. Let's keep going. Mm -hmm. um, we'll figure it out. And I think this is... Uh, these qualities, I think, are really admirable and something that, yeah, I when I see them, I try to get that person as fast as possible. <laughs> cool. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was about to ask you for advices for new uh, new hires, but I guess that would be your advice. Or do you have something, uh, another advice you would give to, uh, to, to newcomers in our industry or people that are already established but willing to willing to grow? Yeah, I mean, I think the curiosity and endurance cover it, but more specifically, I would say, um, try to stay driven and focused on what you can do. Um, especially when you're, uh, younger developer, even so when you're older and you're maybe trying to move into a different area or aspect of engineering or development, um, there's going to be things you don't know. And there's always things that you don't know. And nobody knows everything. 
And so really take that to heart and know that just because you don't know something doesn't mean you can't learn it and doesn't make you a bad engineer, mm -hmm. right? There's just always going to be more stuff that you don't know. And the more you learn, the more you learn that you don't know things. Mm -hmm. So I think just accepting and embracing imperfection and your inability to learn everything and do everything at once, I think this is going to be a way to stay in the industry for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. There, I think I want to plug a book. Oh. Uh, the Imposter Handbook, I think it's called, oh, yeah, yeah. from Rob Connery. Yeah, yeah. Um, gorgeous book. Rob is, a, is an established engineer. He has been working for, for decades in the industry. And um, he wrote a book um, going through the, the basics of the CS degree that he'd never had because he is self-taught. Self And he had this imposter syndrome his whole life about, well, I didn't go to a, to, through a CS degree, so I'm a bad engineer. And he now went back to the basics and learning this oh, the hard way. But um, he, And he describes the whole story and why it's important, etc. And it's exactly what you used to say. He's been a gorgeous engineer without that. And he's just now getting to it because he wants to, but he wouldn't need it. And I find this, this really healthy, a healthy way of, of doing this. Yeah. Um, great book. Cool. Um, Cool. Thank you. That's, that's a very quotable thing. Uh, try to be <laughs> driven and focused on what you can do. That's a, that's a great, great sentence. Um, did we miss talk? Did we forget to speak about something? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Then there is the last thing. Um, what's on your plate and where can people find you? Yeah. So right now at uh, KI Protect, we're doing a few proof of concepts with uh, some different industry partners, exploring how we can make privacy a little bit easier for folks, a little bit more accessible. Um, we will likely be hiring in the early 2019. So if you're interested in working on privacy, even quantifiable privacy, uh, we plan on having a research department. So if you're a PhD within this space, please reach out if you're looking for postdoc opportunities. Okay. And um, yeah, you can keep up with me. I'm on and off on Twitter. Sometimes I feel very engaged and other times I must get away. Um, but you can find me at KJAM. And you can find our website and what we're working on at kiprotect.com. Like great places to be, <laughs> uh, to find you. Um, you'll be having talks as well. Uh, yeah. 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 So I'll be at, uh, Strange Loop as well as Swiss Cyberstorm, um, and go to Berlin. So if you find yourself at any of those, please feel free to come say hi. Or just if you're in Berlin and want to drop by the Pi Data meetup, you can always come say hi. The third week of the month is our meetups. Third week of the month. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you so It's much. It's been so fun. <laughs> Thanks. And thank you for the keynote this morning. It was e great. Excellent. Thank you. And this has been another episode of Dev Journey, and we'll see each other in two weeks. Bye-bye. Dear listener, If you haven't subscribed yet, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, and much more. And if you like what we do, please help your fellow developers discover the podcast by rating it and writing a comment on those platforms. Thanks again, and see you in two weeks.